Hello and welcome back to Kind Mind. I have just a few notes to share with you before we transition to the pre-recorded talk of this episode. This month, there is an in-person event in Peru, Illinois. If you're not familiar with where that is, it's near Starved Rock in the Illinois River Valley. The event is called the Metaphysical and Wellness Fair, hosted by Unwind at West Clocks. This is a wellness center and spa located inside the historic building of West Clocks, which was a clock factory. The event runs from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on February 24th, which is a Saturday. So you can come and take in all the wisdom and excitement of the activities. And my talk will be at 4 p.m. and also broadcast live on Zoom. So you can visit my website for more details as we get closer. My band, the Giving Tree Band, has toured in this region many times, so this is a good opportunity to reconnect with old friends in the region who may be listening. But anyone who is in the area who would like to attend, please do so if you're available. You can get the details on my website, michaeltoddfink.com. I'll be back at Speakeasy Spiritual Community this coming Sunday, February 18th at 10.30 a.m. And the next month, March 29th, is a Friday. There will be a Kind Mind Gathering event at a private residence in Yorkville, Illinois. And space will be very limited for that event. So you can RSVP by contacting me through the website and then you can receive the location and address to attend. Okay, this episode is all about the archetype of the wounded healer, which offers profound insights into the human condition, empathy, and most of all, the transformative power of healing through kindness towards ourselves and others. This talk touched on the intricate dimensions of this archetype, paralleling its essence with the natural process of an oyster creating a pearl, because a pearl is actually the only gemstone that is produced by a living creature. The oyster does so because of an irritant, which is like a wound or trauma, and then produces layers of minerals around it. And so this elegantly encapsulates the journey from wound to wisdom. Last night was the Super Bowl, which many millions of Americans enjoyed, and we saw Patrick Mahomes win his third title, and could see the prom king and queen, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, embrace on the field after. But this is kind of a absurd juxtaposition with the airstrikes in Gaza simultaneously. And the World Health Organization reports that over 100,000 civilians are dead, missing, or wounded in this siege. And I have yet to see any convincing case or argument that justifies that scale of violence and destruction. I also perceive the unilateral invasion into this territory, despite the calls for ceasefire and diplomacy and alternatives 
to, re- to try to bring this conflict to a resolution. I find that repugnant. And I continue to weigh the arguments, but I can't see a scenario where I believe American taxpayers with millions of immigrants at the southern border, why billions of taxpayer dollars need to fund this. I mean, does anybody honestly believe that it cannot be resolved without more United States military contracts? And is that our greatest priority? Because uh, I'm open-minded, but like I said, I haven't seen anything to convince me of the necessity for this obscene level of carnage inflicted mostly upon children, nor the utility of the massacre, especially given that it is live-streamed to your children, they can see for themselves. Again, the authoritative and dictatorial nature of this siege and massacre I find reflective of toxic masculinity. I detest that kind of approach to problem solving at any level. In a family, it's toxic. In a company, it's toxic. In a country, it's toxic. So certainly at the international level, we have the tools and the technology to make this interdisciplinary, to make this as collaborative as possible. And so in this talk, I highlight both the individual's journey through healing, but also scale it to the level of groups and societies. Jung's archetype is based on mythology like that of the Greek legend of Chiron. Chiron was a famous centaur and healer. His student, Hercules, accidentally shot him with an arrow. The poisoned arrow was fatal, but Chiron was immortal, and therefore the wound was incurable. And I think this story is powerfully emblematic for the kinds of disasters that humans endure. And there are inspirational examples of this in modern history, such as Candy Leitner, who founded Mothers Against Drunk Driving in 1980 after her 13-year-old daughter was killed by a hit-and-run driver who was under the influence. Her personal tragedy led her to establish this organization that has been influential in raising awareness about the hazards of intoxicated driving and advocating for safety and support for impacted families. So if anyone has ever lost a child, you could understand the wound as incurable, but how do you live with that? Or victims of atrocities like Elie Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor who used his experiences of immense suffering and loss to become a powerful voice against violence, oppression, and racism and wrote extensively and won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986. Just the other day, I was reading a new report from the Attorney General in Illinois' second investigation into the sex abuse in the Catholic Church, just in Illinois. 
A first probe was conducted by Lisa Madigan and now Kwame Raoul completed his and found hundreds of more substantiated reports against priests, bringing the total to almost 600 priests over the last several decades who have abused a combined thousands of children. And in the hospital, multiple times I've worked directly with victims of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. And I can see as secondhand trauma, listening to these stories, how this wound may be incurable. Sometimes the injury is so severe that a person has to learn to live with it. That could be physically, that could be psychologically, some kind of abandonment or shame or betrayal. And when we scale this out to the level of groups and societies, it's important to recognize a spectrum of solidarity and allyship from those who are in positions of safety or privilege. In recent years, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, there is a contested debate about the severity of racism in America and how useful the dichotomy of racist and not racist is. And then you have figures like Ibram X. Kendi, who endorses the idea of being anti-racist. And while I may disagree with some of the ideology, I do think this point is salient, that there is a spectrum of advocacy. Imagine in the pre-Civil War era of the United States during slavery, a dichotomy of white Americans distinguished by owning slaves or not owning slaves. And imagine if those were the only two positions of white people, and that the people who did not own slaves simply thought, I don't contribute to this because I'm never going to live that way, or I'm never going to subjugate like the evil ones in the South. Well, we all know that that would have never brought slavery to an end, that there had to be abolitionists. And an abolitionist might have fallen somewhere on this continuum of advocacy. Somebody is not going to vote for a pro-slavery candidate. An abolitionist is not going to fund the operations in the South, is going to boycott those products. And on the farthest end of of solidarity, you had people participating, white people participating in the Underground Railroad, actually leveraging their own safety, putting themselves at risk at that time of severe repercussions, right? So if there wasn't that continuum and people helping all the way to jumping in and providing sanctuary, things would never change. I don't think that that ever goes away in the historical unfolding of the drama of humanity. It's worthwhile for us who care about the arc of the wounded healer from the micro level to the macro level to look at ourselves in the mirror and see where we are on this spectrum and where we ought to be. The title of this episode, The Wound is Where the Light Enters, is inspired by the poetry of Rumi, a Persian 
13th century Sufi mystic poet. And there is a poem from which this title is derived. I'll share some lines of it with you. What is the mirror of being? Non-being. Always bring a mirror of non-existence as a gift. Any other present is foolish. An empty mirror and your worst destructive habits, when they are held up to each other, that's when the real making begins. That's what art and crafting are. Your doctor must have a broken leg to doctor. Your defects are the ways that glory gets manifested. Whoever sees clearly what's diseased in himself begins to gallop on the way. There is nothing worse than thinking you are well enough. More than anything, self-complacency blocks the workmanship. Put your vileness up to a mirror and weep. Don't turn your head. Keep looking at the bandaged place. That's where the light enters you. Thank you for listening. I'm also putting more videos on the YouTube channel at Michael Todd Fink, so you can watch some of this talk there. And please subscribe to that channel if you haven't. I hope to connect with you at one of these upcoming events, and I appreciate your support. If you would like to access bonus content and offer support to this show in the form of a financial contribution, you can do so at patreon.com kindmind. The link is in the description. Take care. The archetype of the wounded healer. This is a concept deeply rooted in psychology and mythology. It was popularized by Carl Jung, although his term was wounded physician. Accordingly, this classical social role of the doctor or the medicine man or the medicine woman is not only precipitated by the practitioner's own illness or trauma, and therefore the catalyst for their pursuit of medical practice, but theorized as prerequisite if their treatments are to be effectual. Having transmuted their personal pain into empathy plus wisdom, this qualified them to assume such license to care for the community and the desired results from those they treated would be the certification for prospective patients. Jung has a quote, the doctor is effective only when he himself is affected. Only the wounded physician heals. Nowadays, this model has been extended to include any helper, such as a therapist or an instructor, teacher, coach, any social service worker, or even an activist. In my professional experience, this dynamic is often, at least anecdotally, corroborated by my fellow clinicians and MSW classmates, especially those working with populations with mental illness or addiction. In 12-step programs, the sponsor is one who previously struggled, successfully worked the steps as a sponsee to someone, and then with substantial time, alcohol-free, might sponsor someone else. And that involvement also supports their ongoing healing. While it's clear from the onset that there's always vulnerabilities on both sides, and they're 
histories are imperfect and therefore it centers the partnership on a footing of respect and genuineness in contrast to like a detached expert in the therapist chair or doctor who can just spend a couple minutes with somebody and and then uh, write a prescription but it doesn't feel like there's the same sort of depth of relating surveys have been conducted that suggest a correlation between personal suffering and one's decision to enter the mental health field. So as one could easily imagine for an AA sponsor, this archetype and Jung simultaneously cautions any healer to continuously monitor their own psychological and emotional states to mitigate the risk of unresolved trauma interfering or counter-transferring during providing care and depending on what themes present in their patient or participant. Otherwise, this could manifest as projecting their experiences onto the client or over-identifying with the patient or indulging in the grandiosity of self-identification as a healer. This wish to save the world is often a guise for the hidden desire to rule it. Similarly, the compulsion to rescue someone may be the unconscious attempt to fix and control them. Once Jung had a dream that he was small and the patient was a giant because he was starting to believe in his own legend, there's a fine line, limited range, and appropriateness of self-disclosure when it explicitly or tacitly benefits the participant, not in the service of the provider. And this can contribute to greater authenticity, validation, and therapeutic alliance. My brother was telling me the other day of an acquaintance, I'll try to alter the details to protect patient confidentiality, but person was struggling with autoimmune disease as is rampant in society today. And uh, the doctor, was encouraging a biologic injection and the patient was reluctant to take the treatment the doctor said if it makes any difference i suffer from the same condition and i would be uh, willing to to take my medicine with you if you choose or if that makes a difference and it did and the patient elected to have the intervention and is doing quite well so this dyad of the healer and the patient is often metaphysical in nature as the transformation happens in the realm of the psyche. It's not always perceivable in the manifest world. So anyone listening who thinks, well, I've had a lot of mental instability in my life or that my pain or my trauma gives me imposter syndrome. Well, this is to encourage you to continue with your self-care and self-kindness. And if that inspires you to give back now or in the future, you're never disqualified. In fact, you may be uniquely positioned in society to be of significant benefit. And it doesn't have to be in the professional sense. It could, this could be in your art or in your story or perhaps in your work. Just as there's a crucial demarcation between a cartographer, one who draws maps, and a tour guide, one who's actually traversed the mapped terrain 
and therefore knows firsthand the hazards and can show the way. This also isn't to suggest that a cartographer can't become a tour guide or that someone who's only studied psychology couldn't be successful in practice, but rather to clarify that why the wounded should not feel precluded by internalized shame or unworthiness. Now, how far along does one need to be in their healing before assisting others in their healing? Does one need to be fully healed? There may be no definitive answer here, or it could be a spectrum. It depends on the way one aspires to help or the role. In modern times, there are formal steps to certification and regulatory agencies that standardize different professional fields. However, I think that we all embody the dialectic of the healer patient or teacher student. There's always more to learn from someone. And whatever set of experiences we've lived through, there's every possibility of using that to support another. They're teaching assistants and tutors that are still learning the material themselves. When I was in fifth grade, my teacher, Mr. Patelis, who I admired so much, asked me to tutor another student in exchange for a happy meal from McDonald's at the end of the year if it was successful. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty good deal. Again, I appreciate the tradition of sponsoring sponsee in fellowship groups, as I'm familiar with it from, just from my association in healthcare settings, because the sponsor is very candid about their liability to a substance and typically also meets with their own sponsor. I heard from someone who felt a lot of embarrassment after um, one day, one time return to using in the wake of a tragedy, but then was uplifted by their sponsor who said, for all of us who identify as having an addictive relationship or allergy to substance, then whoever here woke up earliest has the most time sober. The eminent psychotherapist Irvin Yalom wrote in one of his books, sometimes the very wound we attempt to heal in others is the wound we carry ourselves. That implies that there often remains something unresolved, perhaps because it's too painful or something else that is even incurable. And what is incurable or inescapable for everyone? The wounded healer archetype in mythology symbolizes an almost arcane archive of self-knowledge. Given the modern evolution, let's say, of the field of medicine, which centralizes chemical medicine, aka pharmaceutical drugs, and the primacy of empiricism, but mostly the gold standard of clinical trials with those drugs. Perhaps a limitation or paradox in contemporary treatments is specialization and hyper-focused, concentrated expertise. A cellular biologist is unlikely to arrive at a comprehensive view of what it means to be human without deep insight into broader social and psychological contexts. And health and healing is always embedded in a wider milieu and to be successful in healing, one must be able to relate it to those scales, to those systems. Alternatively, a cognitive science is not rendered fully explicable without cellular biology, without grasping the neurological underpinnings of how and why we think. 
Whereas ancient sages observed everything, everything they could, because there was no modern assignment. That kept their mind open and curious and, and helped them make connections. The alarming mental health trends today and the numerous humanitarian crises all underscore the need for interdisciplinary approaches to wellness and peace. From antiquity, there was a Greek god, Chiron, who is the quintessential example of the classical motif of the wounded healer, but replete with philosophical prescriptions for Stoic and existential health. Chiron was renowned for his knowledge and skill in teaching, healing, and prophecy. Prophecy could literally mean his clairvoyance because he's supernatural, he's a god. But in healing, a doctor should have knowledge of the progression of an illness or condition and does make a prediction or forecast, which now we call a prognosis. Chiron was the son of the titan Cronus and a, a sea nymph named Calira. His birth was bizarre as Cronus, in a licentious and unscrupulous maneuver to hide from his wife, Rhea, transformed himself into a horse. And then his union with the sea nymph resulted in their offspring, Chiron's half-horse, half-human form, a famous centaur. And then Chiron was a student of Apollo, from whom he learned medicine and music and archery and hunting and astrology. Later, Chiron had famous students, notably Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine and healing, who in turn instructed his daughters, the goddess Hygieia, goddess of health and cleanliness from which we derive the word hygiene, and Panacea, the goddess of universal remedy. The rod of Asclepius, a serpent-entwined staff, remains a prominent medical symbol and represents both rejuvenation and the inherent risk of medicine. It's symbolized by the, the intertwining of the snake. One of Chiron's other students, Hercules, accidentally shot and wounded his mentor, Chiron, with a poisoned arrow that had been dipped in the blood of the Hydra. The Hydra was a sea monster that Hercules previously had slain. However, as the son of Cronus, Chiron was immortal, so his wound was incurable, dooming him to endless pain. But that didn't stop him from administering kindness and dispensing wisdom to help others heal from their ailments. In one version of this myth, Prometheus, another titan who was bound to a rock as punishment for bestowing fire to humans, Chiron, then out of compassion for Prometheus and also self-compassion, pleads to Zeus to trade places or trade his immortality for the release of Prometheus. And this act of self-sacrifice allowed him to die, but freed him from his eternal suffering. This is also resemblant of the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha, in which desire, often portrayed as a fire, keeps one in the cycle of dukkha, or the wheel of suffering, until self-sacrifice or self-transcendence. Anyways, after his death, in recognition of his righteousness, Chiron was placed among the stars, 
as the constellation Centaurus, or sometimes Sagittarius. And my contemplative interpretation of this for us mortals is that the incurable wound is aging and death. People resist it, for sure. We all do, for the most part. That's not really the issue. More so, it's the denial of death and the taboo this engenders for younger generations, for our pupils who look up to us. This is an election year, and the presidential race will likely once again come down to the forced choice of two now octogenarians. And that's not an excuse for age discrimination. I think whoever's applying for anything deserves the merit of fair selection process. On the contrary, I just want to say that if it were me, I'd hope that I would not see myself as the answer. Even if I was privileged and wealthy enough and knowledgeable enough. Uh, so it's not that. It's self-awareness. I would want to have long transitioned to the role of a teacher or advisor or mentor. I hope to be an elder, a consultant, you know, in the forest, in the desert. And this is truish for any arc. Isn't it reflective of arrogance and attachment? Like in pro sports, we have these prominent mega millionaire star coaches clinging to their position and status as they approach very old age, 80 and beyond. Despite that, so much teaching goes into coaching and there are so few positions and so little time for anyone to, uh, to undertake it. Why not transition with an endorsement for the best or worthy pupil who has studied under you? Are, are these attempts to deny death or cure the incurable? Don't these people's families and loved ones who probably had to sacrifice so much for the sake of these celebrity or, or political careers, don't they and their children and grandchildren deserve some time back? If I were a coach, I'd say, I'd love to continue to do this. And my mind knows how to do it. But I can't guarantee what, what my mind will do beyond this month, this year, or my body. This job is round the clock. And I could have the ambition, but my fate may have other plans. So I respect this time for what it is. And I prepare for the next stage. And, and then from a soul perspective, if birth is the existential wound, so to speak, the soul has this incurable condition of rebirth and incarnating into fear and mortal death over and over until something always adhered to is sacrificed and the suffering is transcended, regardless of the soul aspect or not. When we're born, we must learn how to live because we've been unalive for so long. Then if we're blessed to witness several decades of life pass by, we must learn how to die. Because at that point, we've been alive for so long and being unalive is farther back than we can remember. So whether by design or by luck, nature and biochemistry assists with this lesson. Ordinarily, healing is rapid in youth and there's vitality and energy and capacity to enjoy with powerful senses and all that solicits us more sincerely into the physical form, like the union of of a player and their character when someone's engrossed in a video game. Then there's a shift later in life or a midlife crisis and the arc bends towards the earth and the grave. 
And again, if one is blessed enough, this process is patient and graceful, affording many chances to adjust, to, to prepare, to reduce, to simplify, to slow down. Like an autumn tree, fully reflecting the season it's in, and therefore colorfully complimentary and even celebratory and tossing those leaves like confetti right before resting in its in the modesty of its emptiness and the silence of its dormancy and yet another lens is the dialectics because chiron is half man half horse this represents the harmonization of our spiritual nature with our corporeal nature our animal instinct with our moral intelligence or how to live as an individual, but in balance with the environment. The story of Chiron in a daily pragmatic sense can inspire self-kindness and patience and grace with yourselves when enduring hardship or pain. And that even if something feels too heavy or our mistakes or your victimization is too much to bear, that you're not alone and that you're not without special value to others. In a modern myth like Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is the gray wizard when he sacrifices himself to confront the balrog and save his companions gandalf is presumably dead or has a near-death experience in which he has to fully face the demon which is made of fire and darkness those are key elements that comprise the shadow self or the unconscious fire is in the form of of our aggression or our burning desires that nobody knows perhaps and darkness is the fear of the unknown or the specter of death. And when he returns triumphant, he's no longer Gandalf the Grey because Grey is the duality. He's Gandalf the White, who's transcended himself. In nature, I want to touch on one other example before I wrap, wrap it up. The oyster and the pearl. An oyster forms a pearl as a response to an irritant or its own wound. This natural process creates something precious and powerful and attractive for others from a source of discomfort. So this is analogous to the way a wounded healer transforms their injury. A pearl is actually the defense mechanism against the irritant, a grain of, like a grain of sand that finds its way into the oyster shell. Then it coats the irritant with layers of mineral substance that forms the oyster shell also. And over time, these layers build up around the irritant and eventually forms the pearl. So this irritant, which is essentially a wound to the oyster, triggers its response. And over time, these layers represent like history and the impact of trauma. Pearls, though, are also the tears of the gods or dragons in Western and Chinese mythology, which adds a layer of majesty to these gems. So they also represent purity and enlightenment or liberation because of their pristine or luminescent appearance and circular shape. A few quotes about pearls. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it from the Gospel of Matthew. Just re representing that whatever the wisdom is, it's worth everything to get there. And from the Jewish Talmud, just as a pearl lying in its shell in the bottom of the sea has no value when no one looks at it, but when it's brought up and strung as a necklace, it's precious to its owner. So this means that 
we have to transmute the suffering and give back because that's what completes this process. So this mental model also scales aptly to groups and people. In the pedagogy of the oppressed, which is a critique of conventional education that unintentionally reinforces existing structures of inequality by the Brazilian philosopher Paulo Freire, who advocated for a method of education that involves open communication and critical thinking, where teacher and student learn together, like the healer and the patient. But there's some quest and synthesis involved with this class struggle. And he has a powerful quote, freedom is acquired by conquest, not by gift. It must be pursued constantly and responsibly. Freedom is not an ideal located outside of man, nor is it an idea which becomes myth. It's rather the indispensable condition for the quest of human completion. So all the gruesome collective state-sponsored transgressions and institutions of evil, such as slavery, segregation, redlining, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and genocide, that's never terminated willingly by the perpetrators. Leaders lie or obfuscate the details and dispel conversations about injustice as taboo until it's all passed and the victims and Allies themselves have to transform the conditions until the specific exploitation is no longer profitable or feasible. And when all those public officials are dead, their successors and descendants enjoying enough dissociation proudly declassify and denounce those policies while beclouding their own complicity with current depravity. And repeat, ad infinitum, in the book of Disquiet, Pessoa wrote, because men learn only what would be of use to their great-grandparents. The right way to live is something we can only teach the dead. So both individually and in solidarity with community and fellowship, I and we together must strive for our spiritual and common freedom. It won't be given. Like the path of the wounded healer, each of us and together has a pearl to produce from our hurt, from our loss, from our doubt, from our suffering, from our ignorance, from our alienation, or from our rejection or abandonment, the pearls in our heart. We've got to make peace with ourselves and recover our wholeness, our healthness, our holiness, or claim our birthright to self-realization and at the scale of societies to restore our relationship with the earth and elevate people to unity and dignity in the eternal quest for human completion from wound to wisdom.